0: the meaty, like, technical details that I always think, like, oh, I'm going to research this topic and become an expert on it. It's going to be fun to talk about. And then... That like that
1: the time thing. you learned and internalized and held on to for a year every single detail about JSON versus JSON-B and dropped that knowledge. That was it. hot. I used it.
0: That was, that was my one. <laughs> yeah, but you know, you,
1: you got to use it twice, though, is the fun thing. I brought it up a year later. I was like, I don't know what any of these things are. And you're like, well, actually...
0: <laughs> well, let's just keep bringing it up, so... <laughs>
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Chris Toomey.
0: And I'm Steph Gary.
1: And together we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So Steph, how are you doing?
0: I'm doing well. I'm, I'm feeling lucky. Uh, so random news, I want a TV. What? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I I like, I we always have
1: this pre-roll chat and then every once in a while we start recording and you're like, new thing, bam. And this is very exciting. I'm, this is great. What's uh, How'd you win a TV?
0: It's uh, kind of wild, but I, so I'm down in South Carolina and I'm visiting my family and companies will still send mail in my name to my parents' home. I don't know maybe it's just because they're using my maiden name or something like that but it still shows up at my my parents house so when i come home it's just a bit of a joke where my mom will hand me my mail and most of it is just trash like it's nothing that's actually important to me uh, which i can say with a little bit of affection because i used to be part of that world that created a lot of those mail marketing campaigns is this another of your
1: like (laughs) summer jobs where you were like selling water park rides and then what's this one (laughs)
0: That was a good job. I still have fond memories of the water park job. Uh, yeah, this was a, a different job. This is what helped me decide to go to a boot camp and then become a programmer. So it was a job that I had right before then moving to Boston and going through Launch Academy. And I was working for a direct mail marketing company where essentially we had a sales team and then we uh, worked with a lot of different automobile dealerships and we would help them come up with campaigns and then create a lot of the content for like either loyalty programs or like, hey, here's a coupon for like a $20 off your next oil change and that kind of work. So I was the person that was in the middle that was coordinating between like quality assurance and then also sales and then also the vendors that we had to orchestrate So I, I helped to make sure that people went home to a full mailbox is how I made myself feel good about it.
1: (laughs) You took the specifications to the people who mail stuff.
0: (laughs) Uh, No, it, it was a, it was a good job, but it was also one that I, um, didn't want to be at, uh, forever. So then that's when I looked into programming. So that's why I can, I feel like I can joke a little bit about, uh, direct mail and, and, that kind of stuff since I used to be part of that world. But so I got one of those, uh, flyers that was from one of the automobile dealerships in our area. And it's one of those, like, it looks like a scratch off lottery ticket, but it's one where you peel back a different row and then there's like all these different prizes you can win. And, and so we're, my mom and there are sitting there, we're going through them just for fun. And lo and behold, uh, I want a TV.
1: No. <laughs> Have you actually, like, gotten the tv at this point or do you have a small scratch off that said that came in the mail that says congratulations steph you won a tv dot 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 if you come and buy three cars
0: (laughs) yeah so i'm i'm with you on that dot 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 part where i still don't fully believe it yet and we have called them and talked to them to understand what like all the other rules are like there's something hidden right like you know there's always like a little bit of a trap that's there which we haven't found that yet but we also haven't shown up in person for it either uh so we'll find out who knows maybe maybe there's some like hidden ploy where you have to buy three cars and then you get the tv but if i do end up with a tv which i don't need uh we'll see maybe my brother will take it or i may find like a charity or a school to donate it to but that's why i'm saying that i feel lucky today so maybe i'll go buy a lottery ticket
1: (laughs) i mean you already won no you've used up your luck (laughs) i feel like that's how that works isn't it
0: but it comes in threes right i've already had one other lucky event and now i've had this one with tv so who knows
1: yeah, or the threes is the three cars that you have to buy now.
0: I wouldn't call that lucky, No, that,
1: that would not be lucky. <laughs> the idea, if this actually plays out, and we're really bad at continuity between episodes, we're like, oh, we'll follow up on that in a future episode, and then we never do. But in this case, we need to follow up and tell the true story of whether or not Steph actually won a free TV through junk mail uh i've never had anything even remotely useful in junk mail even coming directly to me at my house that i currently live at that i've only lived at for two years the idea that you have to your home address from your like childhood maiden name just absolutely not if if this actually plays out it will be a heck of a story so i'm excited to hear how this plays out
0: I will absolutely keep you up to date, and then yeah, we'll talk about it next time because I'll probably have details this weekend because you have to make an appointment and come in. So I'll have more updates for you next time, and we'll see if I if I go home with a TV or not. But yeah, how's a uh, how's your week going?
1: Uh, it's going well. Uh, less exciting and or lucky per se, but I started a new project last week, and so I've been working on that this week as well. Uh, and it's always interesting joining a new organization, learning new patterns and workflows and processes and communication styles. And I think the standout in this case, at least thus far, is this team is really focused on async communication as the primary and main mode of communication, uh, which this is the first time that I've worked with a team that's really leaning into that. Uh, Certain teams are more into Slack or whatever chat system they're using, although at this point it's almost always Slack in my experience. Other teams use other tools like GitHub or Trello a little bit more. But in this case, there's really no chat system at all. And so we're primarily using Trello as the main thing to organize things. So comments are essentially threads on the tickets that we're working on. And I think that works really well to organize the conversation associated with the thing that we're working on. But it is really interesting having the like async first or almost async entirely sort of thing. Have you worked in a, in a mode like that at any of the clients you've worked with?
0: Yeah, I mean, and I guess yes and no, but not to the point that we haven't had Slack. So okay, I said yes and no, but just no. (laughs) Or uh, ThoughtBot, we are moving more in that direction where we keep funneling more conversations over to Basecamp and getting away from Slack, but not to that extent where we don't have Slack to still fall back on. I'm intrigued to hear how that's going. What do you think of it? Do you miss Slack?
1: I don't miss Slack, although I will say that the interactions that we're having on Trello are very responsive. So folks are responding pretty quickly and where there's where particularly as i'm rotating in and like i need access or things like that i've not really felt blocked at any point and i've tried to have typically at least one or two different things moving so if i do happen to like wrap something up and i want to summarize the current state and sort of ask a question as to where we want to go next i can do that leave it there, and then move on to something else. And so almost like multi-threading, but for my human. Um, I don't actually know how threading works. I don't know what I made, why I made that joke. But that has been interesting. And also the the mechanism of having to be a little bit more precise in my language, because I know that I'm sending this asynchronous message to someone saying, like, here's the summary in total, as opposed to typically in chat, there's more of a back and forth sort of inherently, but it means that I can be less precise with language. And so I can say, like, yeah, I worked on the thing. It's deployed. We're good. And someone's like, wait, uh, just to confirm, did you back up the database? Did you do this other? And there's, you know, we can have that conversation back and forth. This is now forcing me, I think in a positive way, to think bigger picture. And I've actually had a couple times where I'm like drafting up something, and I'm like, oh wait, I gotta think about that. And I go check on something and actually fix the world in some way before I write that final summary. Or not final, but like at various points, there are these little check-ins. So that aspect of it I'm really liking, and it's sort of changed the pace of work a little bit. But I'm still in other slacks, so I have sort of the human aspect still covered. But I wonder if, if that were entirely out of the picture, how would that play for me? I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, I'm intrigued. Is there anything particular that's driving them to be so engaged with full async communication? Are they working across a bunch of different like time zones or this is just sort of their MO? Mm-hmm.
1: I think it's just their MO. I think it's a, a purposeful choice that they're making to embrace that. And there's a couple of organizations out there that I'm seeing do this. Like uh, like I know of the Doist organization behind Todoist as one app, but also they've made Twist, which is their async communication tool for teams. And so they're very much engaged in this. And I've heard this from a lot of organizations that are remote primarily, that like an office allows for a different style of communication. But when you go remote the expectations around that. And especially as you have different time zones. Again, I don't think that's a consideration in the case that I'm in, but I've seen that be a pressure that has pushed organizations in this direction more. So I think with this organization, they're just trying it out and, you know, it allows for deeper focus, less interruptive workflow, that sort of thing. Uh, And I've definitely enjoyed those aspects of it.
0: Yeah, I'd be intrigued in trying it. I feel like the thing that I would miss the most is something that you touched on a moment ago is the human aspect because I feel like there's just personality and banter that comes through in Slack and finding that space in an async friendly way, which perhaps you could do like for Basecamp, we have a what did you do this weekend project or I forget the right correct Basecamp terminology for it. But you can share pictures and say what you did. So maybe you'd find other ways for like sharing that type of information. But there is part of me that feels like I would definitely need to have a replacement for that and still find a way to feel engaged and have fun with folks. That's not necessarily just like a status update on work or specifically about code or product. Projects that are going on?
1: Yeah. I think they do have some regular standing, not many of them, but they have regular video calls that they'll get together on. And so that allows for the fully in depth sync communication and you can catch up and there can be banter and you'll see smiles and things and those very humanizing elements. But I think the idea is to have that occasionally and then most of the time just be async. Uh, With the one other caveat that they're also using Telegram, which is the first time I've ever tried that out. Uh, But the main reason that they're using Telegram is for voice message, which is a feature within the system where you can record a voice message or a video message. But I've only seen it used for voice in this case. And that will just send over to the other person. And then it has a playback feature that you can say, like, play this at 2x. And so it allows for pretty quick consumption of the information. And I definitely would not recommend this for a primary communication channel because there's a lot like if you are embedding to do items or anything like that in a voice message, if there are three of them and you get to the end of it and you're like, wait, what were the other two? Oh no, and you have to like re listen. But where it's been really effective and where I actually really like it is for the more sort of emotional content. Uh, and what I mean by that is like, as an example message, working on this feature, I'm running into a bunch of issues. I'm wondering if we might want to rethink the approach. We could potentially do this other thing. And so that sort of more subtle gray area sort of emotion content, I think actually is captured really well in a voice message where there's tone and intonation and those sort of things. But it's really hard to write that into something on a Trello card. So I think the cases are rare, but there is, in my mind, a lot of utility in the occasional use of of this sort of tool to augment the other async channels that they have. And that is one nice thing is these are little like almost voicemails, essentially, but you can sort of pass them back and forth in an async manner.
0: I'd be intrigued to find out for myself when I would choose to use a voice message instead of a written message. I feel like if I'm sending someone a message, I'm more likely to be interested in writing it up because that gives me time to sort of like craft my thoughts and put it together versus sending them a snippet of my voice. So I'm I'm really intrigued as to like, I don't know how I would feel about that or then listening to someone else's message, because then at that point, too, if we're going to chat, like, let's just hop on a call and chat and go that approach. I also, maybe this this is weird, but I also just hate voice messages on my Mm. phone. I'm that generation where it's like, just text me (laughs) or call me. I'll I'll answer, but I'm probably not going to listen to the voice message. So maybe it's just like a personal thing I'd have to adapt to as well.
1: I definitely share the, generally, I don't like phone calls and voice messages as well. I don't know. I lump them all together. I think we're the same generation, but this is going to make me sound like an old. I do not like text messages, mostly because like you can't mark them as unread. You don't have an inbox. How do you manage them? What do you what do you do? And kids these days with all of their text (laughs) messages, uh, I have a bunch of friends that make fun of me to no end because I'm very averse. I like they'll start a text message and I'll reply an email. i will be like, this is a much better place for us to coordinate our plan. And they're like, dude, dude. (laughs)
0: you're that formal friend
1: <laughs> Formal's nothing. i just yes i am myself
0: <laughs> well i'm glad they tease you because that's funny <laughs>
1: <laughs> wow that that sounds harsher than i think it is uh but cool thanks <laughs> they should they're right too
0: who you are is delightful but oh, i still thanks. think it's fun to be teased about those little quirks yeah. You know I meant that in the non-mean way. Oh, yes, It is I funny. Know. No, okay. all, it
1: is. It's one of those where, like, I almost always know the sentiment that you have, which is almost always positive, but occasionally yeah. you'll say something, and I'm like, I feel like people in the audience may think Steph is being mean, but Steph doesn't have a mean setting. So let me <laughs> highlight that to the people. But yeah, so uh, communication styles and tools, uh, I will certainly update you should I have any new findings. But yeah, Async, it's been interesting. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Scout APM. Scout APM is quickly becoming my go-to performance monitoring tool for Rails apps. I love opening it up to see a prioritized list of issues that I can quickly knock out before end users ever see them. With the weekly digest and alerts, I can rest easy knowing that Scout will let me know if issues arise. Ultimately, Scout APM empowers developers to spend more time building great products by minimizing the effort required to identify and resolve performance issues. Scout's developer-centric approach quickly pinpoints N plus one queries, memory bloat, and other abnormalities. Their tracing logic saves me a ton of time by tying bottlenecks back to the line of code causing the issue. Give Scout a try for free today, and you'll have the performance insights you've been dreaming of within four minutes. Sign up through scoutapm.com slash bikeshed, all one word, and Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. Thanks again to Scout for sponsoring this episode of The Bike Shed.
0: So a while back, you and I had a conversation where I was working on a feature where I have a long running process. And then at some point, I want to know when that process completes, and then I can give the user an update whether it was successful or if it failed. And that particular feature got put on hold in favor of some other work. I am now back on that work. And we talked about whether going like a polling approach where I'm checking on the status of a job or going with WebSockets. And uh, we've ended up going with WebSockets, which I'm excited about because I've done the polling in the past. At least I think I have, or at least I have more of like an understanding of how to implement that. But I haven't worked with WebSockets at all. So I was excited to, to get to play with WebSockets. And that's going really well. So a number of the pieces that I'm connecting and using were already set up. So this is already a pattern that's used with this team. So I just really just need to add a bit of like handlers. So we're using a Phoenix application to handle like the WebSocket connection and creation. So I really just needed to add some handlers to the Phoenix application. And then we have an Ember front end application that then is going to create that WebSocket and then listen to a specific channel and wait for a message update. And all of that has gone well, and it's pretty fun to play around with. Like, I've often seen a lot of, like, build your own chat app with these web apps, and that's cool, but I actually like it for this very much, where, like, I know I have this long-running process and need to give someone an update about it. One thing that I ran into that was surprising – so I haven't worked a ton with JavaScript – uh, most of my experience has been more with like Rails or Elixir or Scala. So working with promises is something uh, like I'm familiar with. I know the concept, but then each time I get back into them, I'm like, what, what do you do again?
1: <laughs> what would you say you do here? <laughs>
0: So I always have to remind myself a little bit on how they work. And so for anyone who is often like me and needs the reminder, the promise will produce a value at some time in the future. And a promise has three different states. So it's fulfilled, rejected, or pending. So it's a nice way to wrap up some functionality and then have like an asynchronous action take place. And then when you're ready for that value to then be returned. And the code that I'm writing, I am initiating a WebSocket. So I'm creating that connection. I'm then subscribing to a particular channel and a message. And the code that I was looking at, because I was looking at someone else's example on the team that's already done a similar pattern, they have a promise that is listening on that channel. So with the Phoenix channels, JavaScript client, the code is like channel.on and then you can give it the name and then also the message that you're looking for, that you're waiting, you're listening for. And I noticed since it was wrapped in a promise, I was like, huh, like, that's interesting, because I understand that we want to start listening first, because then we're going to execute this other request. And we want to listen before we execute that request. So that way, we don't miss it in case it's really fast. And then afterwards, we do some other stuff. But I was surprised that that was working. So the thing that surprised me that I learned is that promises are eager, and that they will run the code that's inside of the promise, but then you can resolve that value back from the promise later.
1: Interesting. what do you mean by promises are eager that's not part of how I think about them but maybe I'm missing something
0: Sure. So it's when you use the promise constructor, as soon as you are creating a promise, then it's going to go ahead and work on that async action that you would like to perform. But then you can wait to actually return or resolve the value that's there. So when I was looking at the code and it's first listening on that channel, it actually was going ahead and starting that listening process. And then we were carrying on to then make the other request that then it's going to kick off this long running job. But that was just something that took me a bit of investigation to understand because the way I was reading it. I was thinking more of like it was this own contained function that it wasn't actually being executed until later on in the call stack. So that was just that was a little discovery of this week.
1: Gotcha. Yeah, I I never really work with the promise constructors directly. I'm almost always working with some code somewhere else is returning me a promise. I'm not thinking about the when that's evaluated or whether it's lazy or not. But I can see how like you would think it starts working when you say dot then or you start to like chain onto it and try and use the value. But that's not actually the case. It's like I'm going to do this as soon as I can. And yeah, that's interesting.
0: Yeah. And then some of the other little interesting bits that came up from working on this feature is one, the idea that we want to start listening on the channel before we make that API call to then kick off the long running process. Because my initial reaction is I'd like to make that API request that's going to start the job and then have that endpoint return like a job ID for me and say, okay, you're good. Uh, we've started the job and here's the message that you should listen for or Some something in response and then use that to then tune into a particular channel which may still work, but I just didn't consider the other approach of actually generating what we're doing now is generating like a UUID and then passing that along to the API. So then that way on the front end, we've already created like a unique value that we know to hold on to send that to the API. So the API knows to publish to the correct place. And then also so we can keep track of it. Have you ever run into anything like that? I don't recall if you've done much uh, work with WebSockets.
1: Um, Not with WebSockets. No. But that general idea of like having optimistic client-side IDs is an interesting one.
0: Yeah, is that an approach that you would take or would you lean towards that previous one I mentioned?
1: For what you're describing, I think it makes a ton of sense. Where I've seen it described otherwise is building a client-side app with optimistic UI updates. So like you fill out a form and the client-side wants to optimistically assume that the record will be created in the backend and animate to the next state immediately In the background, send the API request and then, you know, get the data back and do whatever, but not wait for that return value. And that can lead to some really nice UIs where it's very, very responsive and all those things, but it can also lead to lies. And so I've played around with it in the past, but I've slowly over time i try and do it less now that's not a thing that i would reach for first the idea of optimistic ui updates is one that i'm like what if we could just make the api a little bit faster and maybe add like a loading indicator and do something else but not necessarily not embed more intelligence into the client because i'm always thinking now like well yeah but i also have to do it in the ios app and the android app and the other places and all the other clients need to be as smart now and what if i didn't need that and what if it didn't lie i don't like when it lies that thing where it transitions to loading and then it says success. And then two seconds later, we get the actual response. and It's like failure. I do not like that experience as a person like using web apps. So I'm remiss to build that sort of experience.
0: Yeah, that's a a good example. In our case, we are pausing the user on this page and we're just going to let them see like a little loading icon that lets them know to just go ahead and wait for a moment because if we do navigate them to another page then it could be a shocking experience because some of the changes that they're making should reflect on that page so otherwise you feel like you have this broken experience of like i've just added records but yet now that you've navigated me to the page where i should see these new records i don't see them yet so we're going to go with the non-optimistic approach or we're addressing our current optimistic approach where we just navigate to and we're like, hey, we're done. <laughs> Rational
1: pessimism. I like it.
0: <laughs> oh, and then so then the third bit that's something that I started thinking about is that we're listening on this channel for a particular message. And so the job goes, um, the job's going to publish and then the Elixir app is then going to send that message to us, whether it succeeded or failed. But I started wondering for channels or for promises if I need a timeout, because I'm thinking of there is a possibility. I think it's slim, but there's a possibility where the user could end up in this frozen state. So if the channel never gets that message, then we just sit in the state where the user continues to see that loading icon and never moves on. Uh, I ended up not going that route. It felt a little too pessimistic at this stage to go ahead and and code for that concern because I think it would be unlikely that it would happen. But that was also something that crossed my mind is perhaps this this promise should have a timeout or maybe I don't think I think channels will just listen like in perpetuity until you leave that channel. So it'll just stay there. So I think it would be on the promise that I would want the timeout.
1: I wonder how often WebSockets just kind of drop and then you might have like a hung connection so you're not you're never going to get a response but if the promise is still waiting or i guess if you're you'll probably get into the rejected state of the promise well i guess if you're creating them then you've got to manage it and if you're doing that then you'll do that but if you're not then you won't but that's probably the one that i would consider and then certainly if there's the reasonable possibility of it then it'd be nice if the ui took advantage of that but also you know it's not free to build so
0: yeah, I think that's the state I'm in, where I'm working on. We're making this improvement, and then if that's something that does occur, then then we can circle back and address it. But for right now, it feels like such a a rare chance that that would happen, that someone would get impacted, that I feel like my my chances are pretty good, that it may be code that we don't need to write. So yeah, it's been fun. I've really enjoyed working with Phoenix's JavaScript client that makes WebSockets easy. That's been really pleasant. And uh who knows, maybe I'll build my own chat app one day. No, I probably won't, but... <laughs> But I have really enjoyed WebSockets. It's been nice.
1: It's a nice new tool to add to your tool belt, if not necessarily to build the 17th chat system to rule them all in the world. Async. That's what everybody's doing these days. You just SMS your friends and then they send it back to you eventually and you can't manage the red state and it's nah.
0: Or they send you an email in response so that way they can manage it.
1: That would be weird. Just entirely <laughs> switching channels of communication. Who would do that?
0: Have you had any interesting technical bits in your week?
1: Uh, I have. The client that I'm working with now that I just started working with last week, uh, they have an application that was built some time ago, not too long ago, but it's already sort of entered its legacy phase of life. And it has a couple of technical decisions that were made that don't necessarily match the core tech stack of the rest of the team. So there's it's a Mongo on the data persistence side, Node, Express, and Vue app, and a, a good amount of client-side logic and routing, but also server-side routing. And so the, like, the line between that is a little bit blurry. There are a couple of bugs that I've already worked on related to that aspect. Unfortunately, the Mongo provider that we were using on Heroku had gone away, and so we had to move. But it was there was a question of, can we just port to Postgres? Because that would be very much preferable for the team. We opted not to do that because the architecture of the whole app is very much leaning on Mongo. There's a, a job system called Agenda that exists in the Node world, and it is very much built on top of Mongo. And so I would have to entirely port that whole thing if I wanted to move off of Mongo. And so we had decided... That doesn't make sense. Let's just stick with this and try and fix things. But I'm now trying to add what I would describe as a very small amount of functionality to this app. And I am struggling. I'm struggling to run the tests. I'm struggling to run it in development mode. I'm struggling to understand the production characteristics, to know how it's behaving, to see the log. And There's just so many little pieces that I'm now having to ask myself the difficult question, the question that the answer is almost always no to, but should we rewrite it? that's sort of where i'm at and i kind of want to just throw that question at you and i'm happy to answer any other questions about it to give you context but should i rewrite it steph should i burn it down and build it back up
0: <laughs> i feel like i don't know why for some reason when you said that it made me think of like a new like game show with the host coming out that's like welcome <laughs> to should we rewrite the app
1: <laughs> honestly maybe we just do a season of this show that is that cuz that would be a heck of a <laughs> uh,
0: tell me more about the struggle so when you talk about running the test and getting it working locally Tell me more about the struggles you're running into.
1: Sure. So they're at a couple of different levels. Um, With the testing, there was not much testing in place. So I'm now adding it to start. But I'm having to mock out large parts of the system. And as part of that, I'm just sort of exploring large parts of the system. And there's a lot of hand-rolled functionality. So for instance, there's a caching layer that runs... If a Redis URL environment variable is present, then it will start up a Redis cache. But if not, it will do a node cache. So those are the two states. There's no no cache option. So tests now also have custom setup and teardown logic related to clearing the cache. So there's like a bunch of layers there that I was like, I wish none of those were true, but they're all true. So that's that's like a piece that I would want to refactor because I've had now multiple instances where the cache was leaking across tests. And that was causing tests to randomly fail and that's no fun. Um, but also generally the caching behavior, like that's useful for production. We want to cache some API calls so that we don't have to keep remaking them. But otherwise, that's not core functionality to the app. And so I've really come to enjoy Rails's behavior with cache, which is by default, it's nothing. The cache just falls through and does whatever the the sort of block of code that you give it. But in this case, there's a lot of very manual cache manipulation And so that's a sort of microcosm, but there's a lot of examples like that sort of throughout the way that we send emails is very bespoke and custom and a lot of manual template mangling and things like that, the way we're handling different environments, just lots and lots of features like that.
0: And how's the rest of the team doing? Are they also feeling the same pain points or are they able to move pretty comfortably within the code base?
1: Uh, So the core team hasn't really been working on this app. It was built by a separate group and then now has been taken over. I'm I'm doing the primary work on it. And so in theory, down the road, the core team will be taking it over. And so ideally, if it were on Postgres, for instance, that's a more familiar technology. And so that would be preferable, but they've not really had a chance to poke at this either.
0: We're getting into dangerous territory, but I can't help but ask, how long do you think it would take to rewrite the app?
1: Uh, You know, it's it's very dangerous. So I'm intrigued because there is some fancy view logic, some nice animations and some things in that layer that would be very difficult to recreate. But I think I might be able to port that. So I would just keep most of the view layer port that into another app, and then rebuild the core pieces behind the scenes. And I think it's a couple days. And initially, even that estimate felt too high. But now as I'm trying to fix little bugs and trying to add features and as we've had conversations now that hint towards there being more work in this app moving forward, as opposed to like, let's just do this one-off bug fix, and then we'll move on to some other piece of the platform Seeing that this might be more of a focus and want more investment down the road, it it does beg the question again.
0: I think what always makes me the most nervous about rewrites is it's not so much like the time that's invested in rebuilding the application, but it's the which features are we building? Are we going for full parity? And then it's the managing of the existing application. Why also building this other application, like under the cover that then you're going to swap over to one day. And then are people going to feel very tied to certain features, even if perhaps people aren't really using those features. So I'd be curious to like, if there were any analytics around, like, these are the, I don't know, 10 features that this app needs to do. So that means perhaps that you can remove some of those features if they're not heavily used. So I feel like you'd really need that freedom and buy-in from the team when they're saying like, yes, we are going to rebuild this application, but we're also going to reconsider the features that we have, and not necessarily just rebuild everything that's currently the way it is in the application, because then I feel like you're going to end up with a lot of that wonky stuff back in the app. Not, I don't mean to imply that the features are wonky, but I've just seen that before where you, you can have those, and then those features still make their way back into the new app, so you don't really get like that like clean code that you're looking for as you're trying to build stuff the way it is in the other application, so users don't have a change in experience so yeah i don't know that's a fun question it sounds like you're kind of in the refactor stage or you're in the identify the pain points and how much time it takes to work with those pain points and then can you isolate those and then refactor those and sort of like improve your world bit by bit versus trying to rebuild the world
1: we were definitely in that mode and we still are in that mode but today was enough of a struggle for me that it it forced me back into the like but if I could just make the jump then and it's such an easy story to tell yourself that oh there's not even that much behavior here I could just port that in a day that's definitely not true it's never been true in the history of the world but this is a very small app it's very focused it does not do a lot it does not have a ton of features and actually in terms of functionality when I look at it most of the things make sense they're sort of a cohesive feature set and a very minimal feature set and so I like that as a as a conversation point if we're ever talking about rewrites, but this is a small enough system that I would probably do pretty much a feature parity sort of thing and then a swap out in place. Ideally, the end users of the application would never notice the difference. I'm going to keep the view layer, going to keep all the styles, am going to keep the workflow and the routes and the pages, just going to change a little bit of the technical implementation if I were to do this. Probably not going to do it, just as an aside, but it's one of those, I just felt that itch in the back of my head like, man... This would be so much easier if it were different. And again, that's also one of those lies we tell ourselves. So,
0: Well, in addition to my future TV updates, we will follow your saga as to whether you decide to rewrite the app.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Tune in next week on Will He Rewrite the App? (laughs) (laughs) Now we're going to take a quick break to hear from today's sponsor, Indeed.
0: Indeed knows that for any business, your next step is the most important one, like hiring someone who can make a real impact.
1: Indeed helps you find high-impact hires faster without any long-term contracts. And you pay only for what you need thanks to their super flexible payment options. So why not take that next step with Indeed?
0: Get started with a free $75 credit for your first job post and get in front of more quality candidates. Go to indeed.com forward slash bike shed. That's just one word.
1: That's indeed.com slash B-I-K-E-S-H-E-D. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through September 30th.
0: And again, thank you to Indeed for sponsoring this episode. it it does sound like you said it's feasible with the the smaller amount of features but yeah it also makes me a little nervous for you too because if you are more isolated on this product that you're working on and then you're trying to keep up an existing product and if they're trying to add features to it and then also working on the rewrite that feels like a important enough undertaking that you'd want more of the engineering team to be part of that experience and then also to own it what would you rewrite it with do you know
1: Uh, i think rails Rails and then keep the view layer, like I said, but probably instead of using client-side routing, switch that over to inertia and run with that so it can keep some of the like nice animated transitions and things like that, but not have to split the routing logic between the client and the server.
0: Have you had a positive experience using Vue? that's a... A framework that I haven't used.
1: Yeah, actually, I haven't had to touch the view side at all yet. Um, so that'll be interesting when I get around to it, whatever form that takes. But for now, everything I've been doing has just been on the back-end logic of the system.
0: So if I recall correctly, you've been through this process where you were working on an existing application and then decided that a rewrite was the correct choice to make. What steps did you go through to help you make that decision?
1: That was an interesting one where... The application hadn't actually launched yet. So the organization had sort of early mover advantage in a space. They had gotten access to a new API and a new platform as sort of an early partner. And so one of the developers was working on building out an integration with that platform. And there was a bunch of code, not a lot of features, and it had yet to ship to end users. No user had actually signed up. And functionally speaking, it didn't have the necessary feature set. Uh, There was unfortunately a lot of code and some mini frameworks that had been built, but no real features. And so there was, I want to say it was a month or more, uh, maybe it was a month and a half, where I was working alongside the other developer and trying to find a way to take what we had and bring the ThoughtBot ideal of, yeah, but what, what do we have to do to get this in front of people though? People that would pay money and be interested and tell us what's good and what's bad and really, really try and push for that. But unfortunately, we found that we were sort of struggling against the, the many frameworks that existed, and we weren't able to make the sort of progress that we wanted. And so it was a difficult decision, but it was one that we made probably after about a month and a half of trying to work within that to uh, let's just spike it out. Let's try this in Rails. Let's go for those core, core workflows that we think are what the users will need and see how that goes. And it was sort of an experiment to see, like, what if we were to just back away from what we have right now? And that was still going in parallel. In case this didn't work out, the little Rails adventure that I went on. Uh, But thankfully that did work out and ended up being very beneficial. Uh, That app then also needed to be rewritten, but for different reasons that was the one where the data engine was just not going to be able to keep up with the way that we had architected it we took the the simplest most straightforward implementation of sort of the core algorithms and it was fallen over 2 months later cuz they had sold a bunch of it which was great but also meant that other people had to come in behind the scenes and fix the data problems that i had made
0: I very much like that idea where you have the existing app, you've identified the features that you need to ship this or to get in front of users. And with your current app, it's a little different because I imagine you already have this application is in front of users and being used. Yes. Yes. So with the other application, I like the approach of where like you went on a spike to sort of like figure out if we need these like core features to get this in front of people. What does this look like? What hurdles are we going to run into? You also don't have data to migrate, so that's helpful as well. I haven't been through that process myself, although I was helping with the rewrite of the application that was having trouble in keeping up with all the the different jobs that were running, but I come on after that decision was already made, so we had buy-in from everybody and we we're pushing forward with it. But I think I would enjoy having an experience of like doing that spike to see like what hurdles will we run into if we did want to rewrite this app because then you can have more meaningful conversations with others to say like this is how long it took for these features these are like the roadblocks i see ahead of us these are the features that i'm wondering like do we really need to build them are they crucial is it something we can let go how are users going to react to this and yeah and start to have more meaningful discussions as to whether that's a pursuable route
1: yep one of those classically hard questions but uh unfortunately it's what my brain is asking me right now so here we are but yeah, I will certainly let you know how that conversation goes. But uh, before we wrap up, I have a question for you, which is you have been sharing on the internets on Twitter about your Ergodox adventures, and I got to know how that's going.
0: Oh, I'm so glad you asked me. I was going to make us talk about this, whether you asked me or not. So that was an excellent pivot. <laughs>
1: cool. Same page.
0: <laughs> it is currently a love-hate relationship. It is one that I take breaks from. I I have very much enjoyed it. I do love the split functionality or I love the split keyboard because it's allowing me to keep my hands further apart and my shoulders back. So I'm trying to pay attention to do I have less tension in my shoulders? Is this really going to help me feel better at the end of the day when I've been sitting at the computer for so long? So that's my metric that I'm trying to see if this really has a benefit for me because there is certainly like a learning curve that comes with this. It's also interesting, like the column layout, I do enjoy that. There's a number of the thumb keys that I don't think I'll ever use. Like, I I feel like some of these are just spaced out a little too far that I don't know if it's really quite the right size for my hands. Like maybe if it was a split keyboard and perhaps like a few less keys or I don't know if you could make it any more compact, but I mean, who knows? The keyboard world's impressive. I'm sure they could figure it out (laughs) somehow. (laughs) Oh, and also EBS, another thought botter also just purchased an Ergo docs. So I was running through with EBS some of my recommendations and I have discovered that Ergo docs easy has a really nice live training. So as soon as you get started, you can have the default layout that's there and then it will walk you through a lot of training where you can do a lot of type test, and then it will let you know your score and how you're doing. I also found that I was so slow that I was getting frustrated that it kept timing out on me. So then I moved on to where I was just typing my own files and basically like retyping like code files or tests or things like that. Something that I felt that was going to be really useful and applicable. They also have a layout tour that is really nice. So it walks you through all the different keys. I didn't do that until like the second or third day because I didn't find it. And I was like, oh, this would have been great like 48 hours ago. I'm also using an application called Wally to then update the layout that's on the keyboard and make slow customizations. It helps to have someone that's already made some customizations to let you know, especially if they're a fellow Vim user. So Carl Ray's and the ThoughtBot office shared their layout with me. So that was helpful to understand what they needed since they're a Vim user as well. The reset key is clutch. So when you are going to apply a new layout, there's a little hole where you can stick like a paperclip or something to reset. But then because I found the layout to her I realized there's a reset key <laughs> so I didn't have to scramble for like a paper clip to then apply the new layout that's on there <laughs> I've also found that my fingers know so much that I can't tell somebody. Like my favorite shortcuts, I'm just doing naturally. So I think the other thing I'd recommend is to take stock of a lot of the shortcuts that you're using in your daily practice and then write down what those are, because then that will help you mentally map it over to the new keyboard and the new layout that you're using. And then my other one, maybe people will disagree, but I say take breaks. Like it's, it's an additional mental strain for me to like try to use this keyboard and get up to speed with it. So I've definitely had mornings where I will start the morning with it and I'll use it all the way through lunch. And then I'll take like an hour or two break from it and I'll use a different keyboard. Although I've also found that going back to the regular keyboard is then an adjustment. (laughs) So, so it's just been an adventure.
1: (laughs) Uncanny valley in all the directions
0: but so far i'm really enjoying it as i'm traveling and i'm in south carolina visiting family it is the keyboard that i brought with me
1: oh wow okay yeah even though you have a tiny travel keyboard that is silent for say being in your family's house
0: well luckily i'm further away it's not like being in my apartment back in boston so there's more space between me and other people and they don't have to hear the typing and besides it just sounds lovely i know i'm biased But yeah, I I brought it with me because I decided I was going to be committed to getting really good at it. And I have heard from people that it usually does take a week before you start to feel fairly comfortable with it. And let's see, today is Friday. So if I have two more days, if I practice them over the weekend, then I'll, I'll be at that week mark.
1: All right. Well... There's some hot tips in there. I feel like I've got a keyboard that's on the way right now that I think is a much gentler on-ramp, but will definitely stress me a little bit. And so I'm interested to carry a few of those over there.
0: How is yours gentler? I feel like it's going to be pretty
1: similar. I think it's smaller it doesn't have as much of the thumb keys stuff going on it's closer to a traditional layout and i actually don't know maybe it's gonna be terrible maybe i'm gonna have weeks of on-ramp and uh i will deeply regret the decision thankfully i have other keyboards and i can take breaks as recommended by you but it will be interesting. There was an article that I was reading. I, I am interested in the like making sure your shoulders are positioned well and not just having clicky keyboards because they're fun, which they are, but also for the ergonomics and RSI type things. I've been having just the, the briefest hint of some stuff in my right arm. That I'm like, I don't like that. This is not what I, I want to be experiencing. And so particularly the like bring your shoulders back and trying to split your hands out a little bit more. That is interesting to me. There is an article that I've read a few times, never actually implemented, but I think it's called A Modern Space Cadet, I think is the name of it. It's by Steve Losch, who's the gentleman who wrote the VimScript, The Hard Way book. And in classic him style, it is this absolute novel of a blog post, but it describes all of his keyboard hacking and stuff. And one of the things that he describes is making it so that you cannot use the shift key on a given side of the keyboard with any of the keys on that side of the keyboard. And that's sort of like breaking my pinkies out and sort of rotating my hands is the bad thing that I do constantly. And so I'm interested when I get this new keyboard to also maybe try and make that extra push and do better sort of split handed things anyway.
0: Yeah, I'd be intrigued to hear that goes for you. I think the ErgoDox is doing that for me because I have noticed that my left hand's weaker than my right. I mean, it makes sense to me being right handed, but that's just not something I had ever noticed with any of, of my other keyboards. And so using the Ergodox, I think I am using more of that like proper typing and using like my pinkies and ring fingers more. And I think that is becoming apparent to me that I have a little bit of like muscle to build up to use those. I also discovered that I need a wrist rest with the Ergodox, and I haven't used one for my other keyboards. I don't know if perhaps that was bad of me, but I was okay with it. But with this one, I definitely need the wrist rest, but I haven't ordered any. So I think I sent you a picture of it. But right now I'm using two little blue sponges to rest my wrist on, which totally works. If anybody needs a cheap do-it-yourself <laughs> wrist rest, uh, it's been quite nice. So, yeah, that's been my other discovery. I'm very excited for you to get your keyboard and hear about it. And I do like the compact size of your keyboard. And I'm interested to see how you feel with like being able to reach all the keys. Because, yeah, some of these keys I just feel like I'll never use. Unless I have to move my hands like further. Yeah, I don't know. They're just
1: lost to you forever.
0: Yeah, there's lost to me.
1: Yeah. I don't think I've mentioned the name on this episode. I've talked about it in a previous one. But the keyboard that I'm getting is the Atreus, which I think is like a Kickstarter sort of thing. But... Yeah, that's that's on the way now. And that'll that'll be nice. But I, what you're describing of like, I bought the fanciest keyboard. It's an ErgoDocs. This is the thing. And I've got a really cheap set of just like everybody has the cheap box that the random thing that they found to put it on an angle. I've seen that as a consistent theme with ErgoDocs users of like, I will spend a ton of money on my keyboard. And then I don't know, sponges for wrist rest. That totally makes <laughs> sense. Right. Uh, but I like it. It's a solid hack. Totally works. So yeah, good on you.
0: I do like for the ErgoDocs next generation that came out, the Moonlander, they have the wrist rests that are built in. And they've also removed some of those thumb keys because I suspect other people were like me and just said, I'm never going to use most of those keys. I need a couple of them. So the Moonlander, it looks really pretty, y'all. It has four thumb keys and... I think everything else is pretty much the same. I think it may be a little more compact too, but I love the built-in wrist guards and it's foldable. So then it's also a little more travel friendly.
1: Cool. Well, uh, yeah, again, another thing to follow up on, maybe if we get around to it in future episodes, but uh, your keyboard shenanigans, mine, should it ever show up? I have no idea when it's going to show up. So I don't know. We'll update when that happens. But um, yeah, I think with that, should we wrap up? Sounds good. Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm.
0: This show is produced and edited by Tom Obarsky.
1: If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave a quick rating or even a review in iTunes as it really helps other folks find the show.
0: If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at, at underscore Bike Shed or you can reach me at vicari on Twitter.
1: And I'm at Chris Toomey.
0: Or host at BikeShed.fm via email.
1: Thanks so much for listening to the Bike Shed and we'll see you next week. Bye! Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.